podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com. EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa, That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. Good boys and girls, welcome to the show on Wednesday, the 23rd of November. Back with you after yesterday's absence. And it seems like I missed quite a bit. So let's run through the World Cup games that have taken place. You'll already be aware of them. England 6, Iran 2, dominant from England. Bellingham 2 from Saka, Sterling, Rashford and Grealish with the goals. Uh, Made it Tarami with 2 for Iran. The most notable thing in this game was the injury to the Iran goalkeeper, uh, Berenvand, got hurt. The game is stopped for over 10 minutes and somehow he's allowed to play on. And then obviously within two minutes, he has to go off. And you really have to ask the question of why he was allowed to carry on, why that was enabled, why it wasn't taken out of his hands. This is an ongoing problem that we have in the game where players are getting injured in non-obvious ways. Like if somebody breaks their leg or hurts their knee, it's more obvious. When somebody gets a head injury, it's far less obvious what the effects are unless there's blood or a broken bone or something like that. This goalkeeper clearly had a broken nose and very clearly was going to have had a concussion. He got absolutely creamed by his own defender, coming out to flick away a cross. He did very, very well to flick away the cross because if he hadn't got a hand to it, Raheem Sterling was scoring a goal. The fact that he was allowed to carry on is a shambles and it's not on the player at all. He's obviously going to want to continue playing. It's the World Cup. This is 
the biggest stage in football. So obviously he's going to want to carry on. I don't even think it's the fault of Iran. For me, it's FIFA. For me, the fact that we do not have independent doctors at every one of these games who are not in any way connected to the teams playing. Like every country could send a doctor and they'd be assigned in the same way that referees are. They could be part of the refereeing squad if need be. So whenever the English referee and linesman are working, that doctor could work as well. That would solve a lot of the problems here. And this goalkeeper wouldn't have been allowed to carry on. And we also wouldn't have had the farcical situation where we get 15 minutes of stoppage time in the first half. And then we had 15 minutes of stoppage time in the second half as well. The stoppage time thing is is an absolute joke. Uh, Credit to England. They were very, very ruthless in this game. They took their opportunities. Mount with an excellent header from the Shaw cross. Saka's first goal had an element of luck because it did take a substantial deflection. Sterling's goal is a result of great work by Harry Kane. Saka's second one is a good individual goal, but again, it does take quite a big deflection. Uh, Rashford's goal, Iran were ragged at that point. The Grealish goal was a non-event. Very simple tapping. Great work by Callum Wilson. And, you know, the Taremi goal was largely the fault of Harry Maguire falling asleep. Now, he had to go off with a head injury as well. And we'll wait and see what the situation is with him. Uh, the penalty was a little bit soft. We'll say that and we'll move on. Uh, good win for the English. Um, Senegal nil, Netherlands 2. Very, very underwhelming performance from the Dutch. Strong defensively, but the midfield was wide open. They struggled to really create much of anything going forward. Edouard Mendy had very little to do until... Frankie de Jong finds Cody Gakpo with the cross and Gakpo beats Mendy and scores with the header. Um, David Klassen made it two in the 99th minute. This wasn't a game that had nine minutes of stoppage time. Czech Coyate got injured. The game was stopped for maybe three minutes. I know there was some substitutions, but Jesus, Webb, we don't need to see 99 minutes of that dross. But it's a good win for the Dutch, but they are going to have to up the level. Now, it feels to me like the Dutch could improve significantly with in-squad changes. So, Matthias De Ligt had an absolute stinker. Couldn't deal with Ishmael Assar at all. Jurian Timber would be a big improvement in that role on the right-hand side of a back three. I don't know what's going on with De Ligt, but he has lost a significant amount of pace. Now, I know he's had some injuries over the year, but they've largely been upper body injuries. He had a bad shoulder issue. I know he had a knee issue, but the shoulder issue was the one that kept him out for the longest. I don't know when he lost all his pace, but he can't play in a flanking role in the back three. Whereas Julian Timber was born for that role. That is the ideal role for him. I wasn't impressed at all with Denzel Dumfries. I thought Jeremy Fringpong would have been an improvement there. I don't really understand how Stephen Berghaus is starting. Considering you've got Martin Darun and you've got Teon Koopminer's in the squad, both of whom are significantly better players. You've got Kenneth Taylor in the squad, who's a significantly better player. They left a couple of really good midfielders at home, which I think is is going to hurt them a bit. And you know, Daly Blint is a left wing back. I know the other options aren't great, but he's a good player. He's not a wing back, though. I know the idea is that it means they can flex into a, a flat back four when they have possession. And we saw Delict kind of pushing up into a right-back position with Dumfries playing more as a winger. Again, that would work better with Frimpong and Tura, and, and Timber, rather, than with Dumfries and Delict. And then I think Daly Blind would be more, more comfortable. A lot of praise for Cody Gakpo. Didn't think he had a particularly impressive game personally. Bergvine had a quiet game. And Janssen just isn't of the calibre needed. Memphis Depay will be the starter once he's fit. But I I do think the Dutch are going to have some issues in this tournament. I think they're going to need to turn to some of these younger players like Timber, like Coop Miners, like, like Frimpong, like Xavi Simmons maybe, 
like Kenneth Taylor, these players can improve the team if the manager trusts them. Now, I was impressed by the fact that he went with Noppert in goal, who'd never played a senior international game. And I thought he played well. He made a couple of good saves. He wasn't called on to do a lot, but what he was asked to do, he did very well. The Dutch are going to win this World Cup by being strong at the back. That's their only chance. They cannot win it if they concede goals. So they've got to lock that defence down. And the best way to do it is going to be to get Jurian Timber in for Matthias De Ligt because that extra pace and aggression will be a big key factor for them. Uh, for Senegal, it's obviously not the start they wanted, but they still have opportunities. They can still beat Qatar as you would expect they would. And the Ecuador game is the big one. They've They've now got to beat Ecuador in all likelihood. And that's going to be a tough ask. Um, USA versus Wales. I thought it was a really poor game of football. I did. I thought it was a really poor game of football. I thought Bale was awful for 81 minutes. And then he wins a penalty out of nothing. Timothy Way had put the Americans one up. Was a little bit surprised by his inclusion, if I'm being honest. Because he hasn't been impressive at club level for the last couple of years. The midfield was as expected. The defence was as expected. Pulisic was as expected. Sargent was understandable for the work rate. But Weah was a surprise, but he rewarded the coach with the finish. Uh, the Welsh were just really poor. And it speaks volumes that you know bringing on Kiefer Moore made them look a better team. Maybe they just need to do that. Play, play long ball, route one football and hope for the best. Uh, they will not be a threat to England, though they will get right up for that game. So it'll be an interesting one. As things stand, I think the Americans will probably go through in second place. I thought they'd finish bottom. Genuinely, I thought they'd finish bottom. But they were the better team in this game. And I think the talent will speak out. I think they'll beat Iran because Iran looked particularly poor and got really, really ragged in that game against England. Yesterday, then, we had four games, and um, one of the biggest shocks in World Cup history, Argentina won, Saudi Arabia two. I don't imagine anybody picked this scoreline. And when you see the statistics from the game, and you see that Saudi Arabia had three shots in the whole game, only two of which were on target, and both of them went in, it does kind of speak to how the game was played, but you have to give credit to the Saudis. Their pressing was exceptionally good. But the most important and impressive factor was that offside line. They caught the Argentines offside seven times in the first 35 minutes. And Argentina had three goals disallowed because the offside line was so nailed on, so disciplined, so well-timed, so well-organized. Really, really impressive stuff. And obviously, they do have a bit of an advantage in that they've got a good home support behind them, because Qatar obviously very close to Saudi Arabia. And the temperature, their players haven't had to adapt at all. Their players are used to playing in this type of, of climate. So credit to them. Incredible win. Messi had put Argentina one up on 10 minutes after a bit of an iffy penalty. Um, Al-Shiri and Al-Dazari with the goals. Really, really impressive. I, I That's one of the biggest shocks in World Cup history. Now, I will remind people that in 1990, Argentina, a much more fancied Argentina, the reigning World Cup champions with Diego Maradona in his prime, lost the opening game to Cameroon and still made the final. It wouldn't surprise me if Argentina still went a long way in this competition. But again, they're a team that have in-squad improvements that they can make. Papu Gomez should not be starting. He just shouldn't. Nicolas Otamendi should not be starting. Those are two easy changes to make. Now, the centre-back options admittedly aren't great, but you could go with Lissandra Martinez. You're not going to get punished too badly in the air by most teams in this World Cup. So Martinez in for Otamendi would be one change. Or what might be even more beneficial is to play Martinez in midfield because they could do with someone with a bit more of a defensive backbone. 
Rodrigo de Paul is a good player. He didn't have a good game. But he's not a defensive midfielder. And Leandro Paredes, while he plays a deep role and often gets called a defensive midfielder, is not a defensive midfielder. Enzo Fernandez should be starting for this team with the form he's in. It's ridiculous that he's not. I think Alexis McAllister or Thiago Almeida or even Paolo Dybala would have made a lot more sense than Papu Gomez. It seemed like Argentina took them too lightly. Scored, dominated the first half, the goals disallowed, probably thought coming out in the second half, we're going to coast this, we'll get another goal, and it's game over. And credit to the Saudis, they got their goal, then they got another one, and then they just shut up shop. We're like, right, now come and beat us. And Argentina couldn't break them down. So credit to Saudi Arabia, massive result and great to see. Uh, Denmark nil, Tunisia nil. Um, plenty of sh- shots in the game, but shots that were never going to turn into goals. The Danes, I think, will be disappointed with that result because I think that's a game they would have had marked as one they thought they could win. Uh, didn't work out for them. I think Tunisia will be thrilled with the point. Mexico nil, Poland nil. Uh, a bit of a snooze fest here and Robert Lewandowski missing a penalty. Guillermo Ochoa showing that once again, when the World Cup comes round, he's the greatest goalkeeper of all time. And in non-World Cup games, he's, well, he's Jordan Pickford really, isn't he? Um, he's the strangest goalkeeper ever. But yeah, I, 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 the Poles should have won the game with the penalty opportunity, but it wouldn't have been a fair reflection on the game because I do think Mexico were probably slightly the better team in that game. It was nice to see Poland go with quite an attacking lineup, though, and hopefully they keep that for their games against Saudi Arabia and Argentina. Uh, France 4, Australia 1. Craig Goodwin scores early to put the... Aussies up and everybody's thinking, oh, we might have another shock in our hands here. Theo Hernandez obviously gets injured and it looks like his World Cup is over. It looks like it is a quite a serious knee injury for, sorry, Lucas Hernandez, not Theo Hernandez. Lucas Hernandez gets injured. Uh, looks like quite a serious knee injury and he has been ruled out for the rest of the World Cup. And they're fairly certain it is a ruptured anterior cruciate ligament in his right knee. That is such a big blow to an outstanding player. Now, I would say he should have been starting in central defence, not at left-back in this game. He was replaced in the game by his brother Theo, and Theo will now become first choice, you'd imagine. Theo was a better left-back than Lucas anyway. I thought Kanate and Upamecano were very, very impressive. I thought Benjamin Pavard was awful at right-back, and Jules Koundé should absolutely be starting there. Uh, Chuameni and Rabio in midfield, it worked. It worked quite well. And then Dembele, Griezmann, Mbappe and Giroud as a front four was fairly lethal. Rabio got the equaliser on 27 minutes. Olivier Giroud scored on 32 minutes. Mbappe made it three on 68. And then Giroud again on 71 minutes. And that goal drew him level with Thierry Henry in terms of the record goal scorer for France, that is 51 goals in 115 games. Now, when you consider that Thierry Henry played more games for the national team, Henry made 123 appearances for the French, it speaks volumes. He now has eight games to beat the record. You know, if he goes beyond the 123, then he's played more. I think he's going to get more goals in less games than Henri, which is truly remarkable. And he's such an underrated player. He's always been underrated. I've never really understand understood how he's been so underrated. He's had an unusual career, obviously. He hasn't had the type of career you expect from the, the, the elite of the elite. Started off with Grenoble. Uh, in the French second division. Struggled there, never really made an impact. Moved to Tours in the second division 
And in his second season there, it was outstanding. That earned him a move to Montpellier. At Montpellier, he was part of their title-winning team. Him and Eunice Belhanda just tore the French League apart that year. Really, really impressive. That earned him a move to Arsenal. And you know, you look at his seasons at Arsenal, 17 and 47, 22 and 51, 19 and 36, 24 and 53, 16 and 40 is a drop-off. And then obviously the last season is the season he leaves uh, in the January where he scores 7 and 26 in the first half of the season. And then upon moving to Chelsea, got 5 in 18 for a total of 12 and 44. So those last two seasons weren't as prolific as the first two, but with Giroud, you're not just getting the goals he offers, you're getting the hold-up play, the fact that he makes everyone around him better, the fact that he occupies multiple defenders and creates space for other players. And I mean, you look at Osel and Alexis and what they were doing around him, and he was so important to that. Goes to Chelsea, like I said, 5-18 and 18 the first half season. Then it's 13 in 45. What's interesting about that season is he got two league goals. He got two and 27 in the league. He got 11 and 14 in Europe. Um, 10 and 25, 11 in 31. He's allowed to leave. He goes to AC Milan for 2 million, something along those lines. Really, really important role in their title-winning season. 14 goals in 38 games, 11 and 29 in the league. And he's just, he's a winner. He's just a winner. League title with Montpellier, three FA Cups with Arsenal, an FA Cup, a Champions League, and a Europa League with Chelsea, and a Serie A title with Milan. And of course, he was the starting nine in the French World Cup team in 2018. He makes Griezmann and Mbappe the best versions of themselves. They both play better with him than with Benzema. So when Benzema was ruled out injured, it actually benefited the team. Now, they've they've had a lot of injury problems. The French, obviously, they lost Pogba. They lost Kante, Benzema. Now they've lost Lucas Hernandez. So that's difficult to overcome. But you still look up and down the squad and the talent level is outrageous. But he's vital to them. Even at 36, even as overlooked as he is. I mean, look at this season. For Milan, 9 in 19. At 36. And he's making others better. Raphael Liao is notably better with Olivier Giroud than he is with Zlatan. For him to have equaled Thierry Henry's record is stunning and absolutely deserved. He's one of my favourite strikers of the last 15 years. Now, he's not on the level of Benzema or Lewandowski or Suarez or Aguero or Cavani. He's not on their level as a player. But I guarantee you, they would all love to play with him. Suarez, Aguero, they would all they would love to play with a guy like this. An unselfish target man who just makes everyone around him better. Absolutely outstanding player. And congrats to him on the record. And he'll obviously he will go on to break this record. I, I don't think there's any doubt there. Um and it will be fully deserved. It will be fully deserved. Great win for the French. Good for them to make a bit of a statement in their opening games and hopefully work out some of the kinks. They've got Varane to come back in as well. Be interesting to see which centre-back drops out. I thought Kanate defensively was the better of the two. Upamecano is more of a progressor. But when you bring back in Theo Hernandez as the starting left-back, you don't need Upamecano as much as a progressor because Theo can do that. Kunde will improve them at right back. And that front four, Dembele, Griezmann, Mbappe, Giroud, that is going to be really tough to stop. Really, really tough to stop for any defence. If Chuameni stays fit and plays at his best level, that midfield is capable of matching anybody. And 
you know, they're strong at the back. The goalkeeper's a question mark. Hugo Lloris is a question mark. He will make one big error in this World Cup. It's just about how they overcome that. Or can they overcome it? And you look at the talent on the bench, Marcus Turam, Eduard Camavinga, Kingsley Coleman, William Saliba, Yusuf Fafana, Matteo Guendouzi, who a lot of people thought would start. Axel Dezizi. There's a lot of talent in this squad. So they're my pick to win the whole thing. Uh, this morning, we had Morocco against Croatia. Another snooze fest. It ended nil-nil. Uh, no real surprises in the Croatian lineup, to be honest, other than the fact that I did think uh, Vida would start, but Gvardiol and Lovren, Lovren will, will cost them. Don't you worry. Lovren will cost them. But the midfield is strong. The attack, there's just a lack of, of a real cutting edge there. Like, But they've got talent to bring off the bench, the likes of Orsic, the likes of Meyer, Pasalic. There just isn't a real goal scorer in the squad. And that, I think, ultimately, along with Lovren's absolute certainty to make chaotic mistakes, is what will cost them. Really nice to see Juranovic playing at right back. He's been outstanding for Celtic since joining. And I would expect that in the summer, he will leave Celtic for a significant amount of money because he's a very, very good player. Uh, going on right now, we have Germany versus Japan. It is currently 1-0 to the Germans. Ilke Gundogan has just scored from the penalty spot. Nauer, Sula, Rudiger, Schlotterberg, Rom, Kimmich, Gundigan, Nabri, Muller, Musiala, Havertz. Uh, Leroy Sane has a bit of an injury, and that's a concern for the Germans. They will need him if they want to progress and do well in this tournament. Uh, later today, we have Spain versus Costa Rica. That's the 4 p.m. kickoff, and then Belgium, Canada is the 7 p.m. kickoff. That should be a decent game, Belgium versus Canada. Um, so that's where we stand with the World Cup right now. Uh, I think England obviously would be very pleased with how they've started, as will the French. The Dutch, I think there's... Obviously, they'd be happy with the win, but there's definitely some little things they need to work on. I think Denmark, Poland... And Croatia will be disappointed with their draws. I think Argentina will be devastated by that defeat. And it'll be interesting to see how they bounce back. No real break in sight. Games just game after game after game. Four games a day all the way up until the... Four games a day up until the end of this group stage. Now, when it gets to the final game of the group stage, obviously they're going to do where both group stage games take place at the same time. So we're not going to have the option of watching the four games in a row. You'll have to pick in the three o'clock and seven o'clock slots, uh, which isn't a bad thing. Isn't a bad thing at all. Right, what else have we got then? Manchester United are for sale. There we go. There's a bit of big Premier League news. Manchester United are open to a sale or open to investment. Um, the fact is, United are currently valued at around four billion in the round. But reports are that the Glazers want between six and eight billion to sell the club. Now the timing of this is very interesting, obviously, because we've recently had the Cristiano interview with Piers Morgan, where he lambasted not the owners directly, but plenty of indirect shots at them. They announced then yesterday that they have terminated his contract by mutual agreement and that he will no longer play for the club, making him a free agent. Immediately after that, news comes out through the Atlantic that they're open to selling. But the asking price is way above what the club is actually worth. 
So you would have to ask, is this just a tactic from them to divert attention from the fact that they've let Cristiano go and perhaps quiet some of the fans who would have been annoyed? Are they really open to selling if they're asking that kind of price? Remember as well, Manchester United have in around 550 million of debt sitting on the club, which my assumption is the Glazers will not pay off. So any prospective buyer would inherit that debt. I think it's a very difficult sale. I think Jim Ratcliffe is probably one who will have interest. He came out and said he wasn't looking to buy when he was linked with Liverpool, but he is a Manchester United fan. He did approach them in the summer about potentially buying the club. And I think he was willing to pay around four billion then. I I do wonder if they could come to terms at maybe five billion and he takes on and clears the, the debt off the club. Um that would be my guess that he's probably the front runner. I don't think they will be attractive to any of the Gulf states. So I don't think I could be completely wrong, but I don't think we'll see Manchester United become a state-owned club. Those people who bought City and PSG and Newcastle, and particularly City and Newcastle because they're Premier League, the people like them who want to you know, buy a club and spend a lot of money and, and build the club up, they don't tend to buy clubs like Manchester United or Liverpool. They don't tend to spend four and five billion on their purchases. What they tend to do is spend, you know, between 300 and 500 million, which then enables them to spend upwards of a billion quid on the team itself and on the club itself, rather than investing it in the purchase of the club. They like fan bases who haven't had much success. You know, ideally fan bases who've seen more relegations than trophies. It makes it easier to sports wash. Manchester United is too big of a brand, I think, for the UK government to even allow that type of takeover. United is one of the premier brands in world football. It's one of the, I would say, four biggest clubs in the world. I think you go Real, Barca, United, Bayern. They're the, the super clubs. Then the next tier is your Liverpools, your AC Milans. Um, I, I don't include the the sports sports washed, falsely inflated clubs, uh, in that type of category. Like for example, there's also some reports that PSG could be for sale, and again the asking price mentioned there is four billion. But PSG is not worth four billion. Liverpool and United, not look nothing is worth four billion. But Liverpool and United. You can make a legitimate case that their entities worth four billion. You look at their actual revenue, which is real revenue, not the falsely inflated type of revenue that PSG and City and soon Newcastle have. This is real commercial revenue. PSG isn't worth half of the price they would be asking. United are worth. Not what the Glazers are asking, but they're worth in and around that four to four and a half billion range. And if they are sold, United fans will will likely be very excited. It remains to be seen if they are, who buys them, whatever. Uh, I wonder, could someone like Stephen Pagliuca, who was linked to Chelsea, was linked to Liverpool, I wouldn't be surprised if he takes great interest in this, uh, him and Bain Capital. That would be one name, but I think Ratcliffe is probably the favourite. I think he's probably the one to keep an eye on because he's got the connection already and he wanted to buy them in the summer. Um, As far as Cristiano goes, who's arsed, really? Like, let's be honest. Let's look at his time at United and be really honest about it. He made them significantly worse. He played for himself and himself alone. His behaviour was a disgrace. He put himself before the team on countless occasions. He spent all summer trying to force a move away. 
No one wanted him, so he ended up stuck there. And then he did that interview without the club's permission, without the club's knowledge. And he said things that were unacceptable. United have had a couple of big wins recently that he completely spoiled. The Spurs win. He refuses to come off the bench and then walks off down the sideline while the game is still going on and takes all the attention away from a good team win that he was not part of with his behaviour. Then they get a good win at Fulham and again, a win he's not part of and he takes away all the attention with his behaviour. Now, is it fair to say that he scored goals? Absolutely. He got 24 goals in 38 games last year, 18 in 30 in the Premier League. Round of applause. But he did nothing to help the team get better. They went from second to sixth. And all of the other attackers in that team, Marcus Rashford, Bruno Fernandes, Jaden Sancho, they all had career worst years. He was allegedly going to be a role model for these young players. Well, it looks like Mason Green wants to anyone who inherited any of his behaviours and characteristics. United are well shot of him. The league is well shot of him. And nobody should miss him. As simple as that. We'll do the gossip, then we'll take the break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Aston Villa. But before actually, before we get into that, I did see some very sad news that uh, David Johnson, former Liverpool and Everton striker, the first man to score for both clubs in a Merseyside derby, uh, has passed away age 71. He had been suffering from throat cancer and unfortunately has been unable to win that fight. Uh, a, a Liverpool great played a very important role in a lot of success. Eight appearances for England, six goals. Like You'd wonder why he wasn't capped more often considering international football very clearly suited him very, very well. Played for Liverpool from 76 to 82, having joined from Ipswich. He initially came through the Everton Academy. He's a local boy. He came through the Everton Academy, played for them for three years, went to Ipswich, went to Liverpool, went back to Everton, and then kind of bounced around a bit. Had a loan at Barnsley, played for Man City, Tulsa Roughnecks, Preston North End, Barrow, and Naxar Lions in Malta. Uh, eight caps, Six goals for England. Uh, won the Texaco Cup with Ipswich. Won four league titles, three European Cups, two league Cups, and a Super Cup with Liverpool. Was in the PFA Team of the Year in 1980. A tremendous player. And a, a big, big loss to the footballing community. Um, Let's get the gossip in. We have, I think, two days worth to get through. So we'll do yesterday's first Tuesday. Liverpool will monitor Declan Rice's performances at the World Cup before a possible summer bid. Chelsea are interested in signing Rice and Bellingham, but could have to pay up to £280 million to land the England midfielder. See, I wouldn't touch either of them because they're both going to be so drastically overpriced. Pep Guardiola is close to agreeing a new contract through the summer of 2025 with Manchester City, so a two-year extension. The Athletic reported that yesterday remains to be seen when and if it gets signed. Uh, Serie A sides Inter Milan and Juventus are battling to sign Christian Pulisic. I'd I, I doubt it. Atletico Madrid will allow Joe Felix to leave the club on loan after receiving, receiving no offers for the want-away forward who is linked to Manchester United and Paris Saint-Germain. Everton and England's Jordan Pickford and Spanish duo David Rea and Robert Sanchez are in interesting spurs 
as they seek a long-term replacement for Hugo Lloris. Uh, sign none of them. That's my advice. Sign none of those three. Seriously, none of those three. Chelsea are close to completing a deal for Christopher Nkunku that will see him join in July. Newcastle will target Juventus' Serbian striker, Dusan Vlahovic. No, they won't. They already bought a big number nine last year. They're not going to buy another one. Um, not last year, this 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 year, this summer in Alexander Isak. Real Madrid have no plans to re-sign Cristiano Ronaldo. I, I doubt many clubs have signs or have, have plans to sign him. Chelsea's the one to keep an eye on in the Premier League. Outside of that, he probably ends up in the Middle East. Bournemouth are set to make Gary O'Neill their permanent manager after talks with Marcelo Bielsa collapsed. Interesting. O'Neill wants Neil Critchley to become his assistant. Neil Critchley, obviously, was Steven Gerrard's assistant at Villa this year, since Michael Beal left to go to QPR. And it has been, it was not good with Critchley and Gerrard. So, uh, I, I, I said at the start of the season, I think Bournemouth go down. I don't see any change to that at all. Spain midfielder Marco Asensio's contract with Real Madrid ends in the summer, but he hopes he can agree a new deal. Former Real Madrid boss Didier Deschamps, sorry, former Real Madrid boss Zinedine Zidane has agreed to succeed Didier Deschamps as France manager after the World Cup. That would not be a surprise. Former Burnley manager Sean Dyche is interested in speaking to Rangers. Please don't, Sean. Please don't. I've defended you. I can't defend you if you do that. Paris Saint-Germain have sent scouts to watch Gabriel Martinelli. Tottenham are considering a move for Ruslev, for Ruslan Malinovsky. They've been considering a move for him pretty much since Conte got there. Bayern Munich have asked have been asked by a number of clubs, including Arsenal, about Leroy Sané's situation, but the Bundesliga club do not want to sell. Um, that Sean Dyche thing, it's Wayne Vesey, so almost certainly spoofing. Almost certainly spoofing. Um, today's gossip then. Cristiano is torn between moving to Newcastle or Saudi Arabian club Al-Nazair. I would guess he only has one choice and it's not Newcastle. Manchester United have saved about 15.5 million in wages. Jeez. 26 million a year they were paying him to not play well. Uh, Manchester United's market valuation rose by 17% after owners the Glazers the Glazers rather said they are considering selling the club this might just be a very smart move it might just be a very smart move don't be surprised if they just sell some of their shares and don't sell the club Chelsea are set to open talks over Cristiano as co-owner Todd Bowley seals the appeal of signing him in a free transfer, although Graham Potter is less convinced. I assume that's coming from Ben Jacobs, so it'll be spoofing, of course. But it's well known that Bowley wants him because Bowley's an idiot. Uh, Chelsea and Newcastle have distanced themselves from a move from Cristiano. Into Miami are understood to be looking elsewhere. Um, Cristiano's goals during his time at the club cost Manchester United 1.2 million each. AFC crew, who play in the 14th tier of the English football pyramid, have offered him a club record £35 a week, which would make him the highest paid player at the club. At that level, I would guess the only paid player at the club. Arsenal are considering a January move for Danilo of Palmeiras. Newcastle are willing to pay £10 million in January to sign Marcus Turam. That would be a good signing. That would be a very good signing. Um, Borussia Dortmund striker Yusafa Makoko is in talks to remain at the club amid interest from Bayern Munich, Manchester United, and Liverpool. Manchester City manager Pep Guardiola, yeah, two year contracts. Uh, Aurelian Chouameni says Liverpool made, made the first move for him, but it was intent on moving to Real Madrid. He's, he's actually lying. Um, Netherlands forward Memphis Depay says he's uncertain of his future at Barcelona having emerged as a target for former club Manchester United. United aren't going to sign him back, let's be honest. 
A Barcelona advisor has hit back at the suggestion that Manchester United target Frankie de Jong. Oh, sorry. Suggestion from Manchester United target Frankie de Jong that the club's board leaked the contract details for the 25-year-old midfielder. They did. Like It's it's well known that they did. So um, they can lie about it all they want. It is, it is the fact of the matter. Um, right, we will take a break. And when we come back, we're just going to have a wee chat, quick chat about Aston Villa. It's still 1-0 in the Germany-Japan game. Game is at halftime stage. See you in a sec. Right. Hello, welcome back. So, Aston Villa in the 2022-23 season. Villa currently sit 12th in the league going into this World Cup break, largely as a result of three wins in their last four games since they dismissed Steven Gerrard. So, Gerrard had not done well last season. Gerrard was a strange appointment. When they sacked Dean Smith, they went for a name rather than a good manager. And the problem with Gerard is he's a name because of his playing days, not because of his managerial days. He did fairly well at Rangers. He won a league title, went unbeaten, but he spent an awful lot of money up there. He was able to buy his way to success up there. And a big factor up there is you only really have to beat one team. And that Celtic team had won nine league titles in a row and had been, had been mismanaged and had been underfunded and they'd gotten complacent, they'd gotten lazy. It was no surprise that as soon as Gerard won that league title for Rangers, big changes happened at Celtic. Ange Postacoglu arrived. They started investing more money in the playing side. They turned a lot of that squad over. And you see them now. The gap between Rangers and Celtic is huge. Um, Gerard could well go back there, but, you know, we'll see. Uh, Villa had started this season in fairly disappointing fashion. Beaten 2-0 away to Bournemouth. Uh, they did win their second game. They beat Everton, Frank Lampard's Everton, 2-1 at Villa Park. But then they lost three in a row. They lost to Crystal Palace, they lost to West Ham, and they lost to Arsenal. There's no real shame in those. Palace are a decent team. Arsenal obviously having a very good season. West Ham not having a good season, but we know there's not a lot of talent there. But Villa were just poor in those games. Then they get a draw against City. They draw 1-1 at home at Man City. Now, as we've seen with City this season, they're not quite up to speed. But the truth of the matter is, City should have won that game comfortably. By the time Haaland scored, they should have had three or four. Bailey gets the late equaliser. City uh, Villa get a point. Then they beat Southampton. 1-0 at home. Southampton aren't very good. Obviously, they've sacked their manager. They're in the bottom three. But a win is a win. They draw with Leeds, who play the entire second half with 10 men. They draw with Forrest, who were really struggling at that point. They lose 2-0 at home to Chelsea. And to be fair, they actually played very well in that game. It was one of their best performances of the season. But they followed that up with their worst performance of the season. Away to Fulham, they were absolutely dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. Now, the Douglas Louise red card, which was then rescinded, was a big turning point in the game. It was 1-0 at that point, but Villa had been awful. They sacked Gerrard. Caretaker manager comes in. They win 4-0 at home to Brentford and then go and lose 4-0 away to Newcastle. Then they appoint Unai Emery, who it's a great, a great get for them. It's quite the coup. You're talking about one of the 15 to 20 best managers in world football, a guy with a great track record, a guy with a history of success, a guy who knows how to get the most out of mid-table caliber teams. And Villa are a mid-table caliber team. Their league positions haven't reflected the talent in their squad. They beat Manchester United 3-1 and United were going fairly well at, the, at that time. But obviously they tried to reincorporate Cristiano. And then they go to Brighton and they get a 2-1 win. And it was a very Unai Emery performance. 
they get a penalty, they get a second goal, and they pick up seven yellow cards. Only Esri Konza started that game and wasn't either booked or taken off. Every other starter, all 10 of them, were either booked or taken off. The time-wasting was a triumph by Aston Villa. Um, So look, they won't be delighted with 12th, but they are only one point outside the top half. And I said going into the season, Gerrard was going to have to challenge for Europe. That was absolutely the goal for this season. Challenge for Europe. And when it became clear he wasn't capable, they had to move on. So five wins, three draws, seven defeats, scored 16, conceded 22. The 22 conceded isn't dreadful. The 16 scored is is problematic. There's more talent in that squad than 16 goals in 15 games. So minus six goal difference. But one point behind Palace in 11th, Brentford in 10th, and Fulham in 9th. Three points behind Chelsea in 8th and Brighton in 7th. And we look at Brighton and say they've had a great season so far. Villa are only three points behind them. Now, they're 10 goals worse off, but they're only three points behind them. Chelsea were expecting to challenge for the title, having spent the better part of 300 million. Villa are only three points behind them. So all things considered, it has not been as disastrous as maybe it could have been. I think they've made the right decision to get rid of Gerrard at the right time. They gave Emery a couple of games to find his feet and get used to the players. Now he gets the break to work with members of the squad who are not at the World Cup. And I think we will see a good version of Aston Villa coming out of this break. What I would say is, I still think there's decisions that need to be made within that club, within the hierarchy. I think Perslow needs to go. Now, there is some Liverpool bias in that because he was a big part of the problem at Liverpool. But I just don't think he's any good. And he went outside of the normal hiring process to bring Gerard in. Gerard was his guy. And Gerard failed spectacularly. So surely Perslow has to feel the heat for that. I'm not 100% sold on the job being done by their director of football, but he's going to have to prove himself now over the next couple of windows. They do need to bring in a couple of players in January, in my view. Like, there's a lot of talent there. And they've got a lot of talent out on loan. They've got a great academy. And if they could start to make use of that academy a bit more, I do think you could see an increased level just from that alone. But a couple of key academy players like Aaron Ramsey, younger brother of Jacob, and um, Arug Bonham, the young midfielder who's at QPR, they're very, very talented players who could help the squad. When we look at the goalkeepers, Emmy Martinez is very good. He's had an iffy an iffy season, but he is very good. Robin Olsen's a decent goalkeeper, but he has been disastrous this season for Villa. Really, really poor this season for Villa. Jed Steer is just there to make up the numbers and be a quota piece. Maddie Cash is a good right back. I think they could do it a backup right back, although Ashley Young is filling that role at the moment and he's been one of their better players. Left back, Dini is very good. Augustinson is, is a good player. The issue is they've both had injury problems. Now, Ashley Young can also cover there, so they might be okay at fullback. They might not need to add anything in January, but in the summer, I certainly think you look to bring in at least one and, and see what you're doing with Augustinson. Are you keeping him or are you going to bring in another backup for Dina? Maybe someone a bit younger, maybe the left back of the future if you want, because Luca Dina, I think, is 29. Yeah, Luca Dina will be 30 in the summer. So you can't plan long term with him. Um, at centre back, they obviously brought in Diego Carlos, one of the big signings in the summer. I wasn't keen on the signing. And he's out with a torn Achilles. And we don't know what kind of player he'll be when he comes back. Esri Konza, two years ago, was one of the better defenders in the league. 
he's played with Mings too much and it's had an effect and it's dragged his level down. But I still think with a good partner, he can be good. Mings is terrible. And no runs of three and four games of decent form are going to change that. Callum Chambers had a good start when he first joined Aston Villa and has been a train wreck since. Jan Bednarek has barely played, but he's a solid centre-back. They probably don't need to address that area in January. Carlos might be back in like February, March. You can ease him back in. But I'd be looking to play Bednarek a bit more in the short term. Uh, in midfield, they're going to play a double pivot. I believe it's going to be Douglas Luiz and Bubakar Kamara. I think that's a really strong pairing. I think they could probably do it, you know, looking at one depth piece, but they might look at um some of the younger players and say, well, we have him to come back, so we don't want to block their path. So, you know, while you have... Oh, to be fair, they did sign Leander Dendonker, didn't they? He's just barely played. So they've got Dendonker, so that's okay. If they've got those three, they can call on Morgan Sanson when needed. Um, You'd like to see him play a bit more because he is a decent player. Like, Morgan Sanson's a decent player. So they're probably fine in centre midfield. You've also got Marvellous Nakamba just for the crack. Um, in the wide roles, you've got Jacob Ramsey, who's really, really good. You've got uh, Emmy Buendia. You've got John McGinn, who I just don't rate. Um, you've got the option of Coutinho. You can obviously play Leon Bailey in a wide area as well. So they're probably okay to just get through to the summer with that group. What I would look to do is I'd look to bring in someone up front. I'd look to bring in a proper nine and play Watkins off them. Like if he's going to play 4-3-3, which I, I think he's going to look to keep to 4-4-2. I think he prefers the 4-4-2. So I think Watkins plus one, like a proper nine. I've said before, Ivan Tony's the one I would want, but firstly, Brentford unlikely to sell in January. Secondly, he's facing a suspension. So, not ideal. Um, I think bringing in a striker could be a, a big, big boost to them. But they do have young Cameron Archer. And again, maybe they'll give him opportunities. Gerard didn't give him any chances. Gerard just did a terrible job with the youngsters outside of Ramsey. I mean, he cost them Carney Chukwemeka, who should be part of this team and should be one of the exciting parts of this team. Like if you were lining up with Kamara and Douglas Louise as your holders, and then Ramsey and Chuck Wemmick as the attacking midfielders, I think that'd be very, very exciting for you long-term. I'd love to bring in one goal scorer because I don't trust Danny Ings. I know he's got five goals a season. He's a top scorer in the league, but I just don't trust him to stay fit, and Ollie Watkins doesn't score enough goals, so I'd love to find, find more goals for this team. I like the idea of Buendia and Ramsey as the wide midfielders, one as a creator, one as a goal scorer. And like I said, Bubakar Kamara and Douglas Luiz is a good pairing. Now, if you could upgrade on Douglas Luiz, I'd absolutely suggest doing that. If you can upgrade at centre-back over any of them, including Ezra Konza, I'd absolutely suggest doing that. But maybe their best bet is to look to bring in They've got. I think they can bring in one more loan player, can't they? I think they've got the option of one more on loan. And if they can do that, I think they should do it. Bring someone in on loan just to see you through. Don't go and spend a load of money just for the sake of spending money. But if you can, if you can bring someone in on loan or you can sign a very clear upgrade, like, for example, if Pau Torres was open to the move. He's a very clear upgrade on what they have at centre-back. So you do that. You absolutely do that. If if Ivan Tony gets off and you could bring him in, you do that. Or if you can convince Tammy Abraham to come back to you, to come back to England, rather, and, and come back to you because he obviously played for Villa, you do that. Because Tammy and Ollie would be really good. That would be a really good front pair. If you could get Arnout Danjuma, he's not a number nine, but he has played in that kind of role for this manager before. You do something like that. 
But don't make signings for the sake of signings. Don't sign players who aren't clear upgrades on what you have. Or if they're not, just sign them on loan. Don't go and spend a bunch of money. It's such a shame they lost Chuck Wemeka. Because I think he'd absolutely tear it up in that midfield. Playing from the left, but moving narrow. So he's a 10 in possession and a left-sided midfielder out of possession. You want him coming narrow, so Dina has the whole flank. Ramsey doing the similar job on the right, a narrow 10 in possession, dropping out right when you lose the ball and helping your fullback, but clearing path for Matty Cash, whose final ball is not great, but he does provide an outlet. He's got great pace. That midfield would be really good. Don't do anything silly. That's the message for Villa. I think they'll finish in the top half this season because I think they've got a really good manager. So I've got Villa finishing in the top half as things stand. And that's it. That's all I've got today. I'll see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.